The views expressed in this program are those of the participants. Modeling, Schultz. We're going to take out that wall and put in a picture window. Please, Colonel Hogan. Schultz, how else do we get the tank in? So we can take it apart. Oh, no. I don't see anything. I hear nothing. Sergeant. What's the name? Schultz. I have uncovered a plot to... And that is why you hear nothing and you see nothing. Lieutenant, this is a speech problem. I sometimes speak. I say things I do not know what I say. He's right, Lieutenant Newkirk. I urge leniency for this man on the grounds of general incompetence. That's right, Lieutenant Newkirk. Sometimes my wife even says... Newkirk? I do like my accent. That's great. Laveau, you want to put some padding in those shoulders there, please? Hi, sir. Hi. What a relief. If they get stopped, I would uncover what's going on around here. Colonel Hogan. Hmm? What is he doing in the uniform, Colonel Hogan? Please. Oh, you went too far. I must report this. It would be worth my life if I do not report this. It's only until tomorrow, and he's going to take it off again. Uh... After he steals the tank. Oh? From the Panzer Division. Oh! He brings it here into the barracks. Oh, I see nothing. I was not here. I did not even get up this morning. <laughs> Welcome, everyone. It is Thursday, October 12, 2023. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Join us for an hour of discussion that's not right-wing. It's Just Right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be it was a running joke throughout the entire 1960s television series, Hogan's Heroes. I see nothing, I hear nothing, I know nothing. It made John Banner, the actor who played Sergeant Schultz, quite a celebrity in his time. I remember seeing him on the Johnny Carson show when the audience would laugh every time they heard him repeat those phrases. Funny then, and even today, but not so funny to the people throughout history, who literally abided by those words when confronted with and living in any tyranny. I was surprised to hear Canadian journalist David Creighton refer to Hogan's Heroes during his interview with Clayton Morris on Redacted back on September 27, which we featured on our show last week. He did so in the context of their amazement that the Canadian Parliament would unanimously give a standing ovation to a Nazi war criminal for his role in fighting Russia during the Second World War. Said Creighton, quote, Clearly, Speaker of the House Anthony Rhoda obviously didn't grow up watching Hogan's heroes. He didn't seem to know that the Allies were fighting on the same side as Russia during the Second World War, end quote. And of course, in their defense... Canadian parliamentarians chimed together in their various versions of I see nothing, I hear nothing, I know nothing, even as they continued to cheer on their current favorite Nazi, Ukraine's Zelensky. While this has opened the eyes of many, we see the same phenomenon at play today as millions of Westerners see nothing, hear nothing, and know nothing, even when faced with a mountain of evidence 
of the big something that is pressed against their very noses. What they do know is always the official narrative, one that this past week saw an act of terrorism carried out in Israel under what seems to me, as of this moment, to have been entirely an orchestrated false flag event initiated or enabled by Israel against its own people to justify some planned military event. The last time this exact thought occurred to me was when Israel's own government turned the country into the world's first major test market for the experimental gene therapies that it forced and coerced its citizens to take. I can still hear the cries for help being posted online by Israeli citizens finding themselves overnight to be prisoners in their own country, including those featured on this show. The terrorist attack on Israel has been called an act of war by those who are orchestrating the tyranny for the purpose of perpetuating war. And to that point, let me say this. War is not the greatest evil to fear. Tyranny is. One of the first lessons I learned from reading Ayn Rand was that the number of people killed in wars fought against foreign enemies throughout history is utterly dwarfed when compared to the number of people killed murdered, and enslaved by their own rulers and governments. This has been the major history of mankind for as far back as we can know. Tyranny is the cause of war, and wars are mere flashpoints of a tyranny running into resistance, often from another tyranny. And isn't it interesting how everyone's attention has suddenly shifted away from last week's frenzy about Canada, Russia, Ukraine, and Nazis in our midst, including Jewish Nazis, to yet another event calculated to engender global sympathy for Israel and the Jewish people. What's happening in Israel today is entirely connected to events in Ukraine, and it is toward events in Ukraine and in Russia that we shall remain primarily focused, particularly in light of some very personal correspondence forwarded to my attention only weeks ago, correspondence that was written in the Ukraine, and which I must confess presents a great deal of discomfort to me personally. Hopefully my discomfort will in some way become yours. Our journey into the kind of discomfort necessary to get more people to hear something, see something, know something, and then maybe say something or do something begins right after our reminder that you can write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org. Hear us on WBCQ and on Channel 292 Shortwave. Follow and like us on your favorite podcast platform and visit us at justrightmedia.org where you can access all of our social media links, archive broadcasts, and the support button that makes it easy for you to support the show. Because as always, your financial support is appreciated and is what makes this show possible. Now, I've been procrastinating about sharing this for a few weeks now, and I had planned to continue procrastinating about it until last week's broadcast with our guest Salim Mansour regarding the Nazis in the Canadian Parliament and about the ones in Ukraine being enthusiastically subsidized by the Canadian government through its taxpayers. A lot of dominoes began to fall upon hearing what Salim had to say last week, and the timing couldn't have been more coincidental, given that only... A few weeks ago in September, my sister Kathy forwarded a copy of a letter that was written in the Ukraine by a prisoner to his younger sister and niece who at the time were also in Ukraine. I quote, 
Dear Muntica and Raisi, I let you know that I am now in the second camp. Since February, I am sickly, but I'm so skinny like a smoked fish. For eight months now, I haven't got a penny. We only get 40 grams of bread. At noon, we get three spoons of water, one tablespoon of porridge. If it lasts much longer, I'm going to die of starvation in this camp hospital. I got two postcards, and both are the same, and so I gave you one. What do you think? Will there be going home? May the good Lord grant that I'm amongst them. It would be good to see the family again. If you got the time, please come, dear Mansika. It's possible that I cannot take it much longer. God be with you. I wrote this to you, for now I am not going to write. I will wait a few days so that I can see if something comes of this going home. End quote. Now this was the final message ever received from the writer since he passed away shortly after writing it. Originally written in Hungarian, it was only recently translated and made available to us in English, but what I haven't told you so far is that the person who wrote that letter was my grandfather, Maximilian Hillinger, born January 24, 1904, in Alec, Hungary, and who passed away on July 22, 1947, in the city of Krivoyrog, Russia, after being forced into slave labor in Ukraine, for several years. Maximilian was my mother's father, and only a couple of days ago my sister sent to my attention this follow-up, this time a letter written in German to my mother's mother, my grandmother of course, on May 24, 1948, because she needed someone to confirm that my grandfather had indeed passed away in Russia in order to qualify for her widow's pension. And here is the reply she received from an Edward B. confirming just that. Quote, Dear Hillinger family, It goes without saying that I will fulfill the request that you have made of me. You will excuse me as I have such sad news to tell you. Would love to write something different, better, but unfortunately, fate wanted it that way. Surely you have heard that your dear father was already assigned to a transport on July 3, 1947 that was to go home. But then unfortunately, because his condition was so bad that he could not have endured the journey with still four other comrades, was brought back to the camp. I did not see the corpse of your dear father because the deceased were locked in a chamber immediately after death and stayed there until the time when people buried them who also stayed there. A mountain funeral, in our sense, didn't exist. There were always three or four men who had to dig the grave and bury the dead. Saw your dear father right after he came to our camp. But he was already so thin then, if he hadn't spoken to me, I wouldn't have known him. From then on he didn't work, but came with others who were just like that to the camp infirmary, where he also died. Now I would like to close my letter. Please excuse me again, as it was me who told you all the sad facts. I can imagine that you all don't have it easy. Surely you also know that we also buried our dear father in Russia. Receive my sincere condolences, end quote. Well, when I saw the reference to the deceased being locked in a chamber, I recalled something my mother said about that some time ago, namely that the bodies 
did not have to be buried in any hurry, because they were not rotting or decomposing in the usual way. There was so little flesh left on the bones of the deceased and starving that there wasn't much left to decompose. And folks, this is not some event that happened in some long-forgotten recesses of history. Historically speaking, this wasn't even barely just yesterday. And I'm telling you now, this may be our tomorrow. I tell you all of this to issue a warning. Do not think for a minute that what happened to my grandfather and millions of others like him not even a lifetime ago could not happen to any of us because as some of you are already discovering, it is already happening and it's happening exactly the way it began in Ukraine and elsewhere. And this concerns the willingness of so many to blindly follow orders of some given authority. To that point, I'll cite a story my mother used to tell on more than one occasion around the supper table over the years about my grandfather's captivity in Ukraine. He used to write regular letters home to Hungary in which he would assure everyone that the Russians and Ukrainians for whom he was forced to do labor on their farms treated him and the other workers kindly and very well as individuals. But, when the orders came down from the relevant authorities, and I can now describe this in today's terminology since it didn't exist at his time, a form of mass formation took over the people and they could abandon you on a dime. And my grandfather would also comment on the apparent willingness of the locals to pick up and follow any political revolutionary that came along as if that was some kind of phenomenon of its own. Turbulent times, to say the least. And bear in mind that though the place of my grandfather's death was Krivoyrog, Russia, that is synonymous with the Ukraine, a point of history and geography to make before any unnecessary confusion sets in. So before continuing with this personal history, let us now return to the present in order to look back into a broader history, one remarkably parallel to what we've been hearing from Salim Mansour, this time as told by Bill Whittle who on August 29th, Daily Wire, previewed a multi-part feature release on what the Cold War was about and what every Western person should know and understand about Russia. 30 years ago, the Berlin Wall was torn down by the people that it had divided for three decades. Berliners were euphoric. They were euphoric because the Berlin Wall was not merely a wall between East and West Berlin. It was the wall between East and West, period. It was the division of humanity into two different camps. And since labels and names are always changing and morphing, not to mention carrying decades of emotional baggage, let's reduce it to the most simple, emotionally neutral terms. Now, on one side of the wall, the Eastern side were the collectivists who believed that society takes precedent over the person. This collectivism was advertised as new and scientific, but the fact is that collectivism has been the default condition of humanity since humanity began. Now, the actual newcomer to this clash of visions were the individualists on the Western side. The first government in history dedicated to the idea of the individual being more worthy of protection than the state had just turned 170 years old when the 40-year conflict known as the Cold War began. Now, with the world in ruins after the defeat of Nazi Germany, Imperial Japan, and fascist Italy, these two ideologies had come under head-to-head -head conflict here in Berlin. 
it quickly became evident that Soviet leaders were not interested in a free, unified Germany and were determined to induce or force the Western powers to leave Berlin. Certainly, the American and Western people do not want war. But all history has taught us the grim lesson that no nation has ever been successful in avoiding the terrors of war by refusing to defend its rights, by attempting to placate aggression. From the East, the collectivist idea called communism had slugged its way for mile after bloody mile, limping and then striding and finally running across Eastern Europe from the Nazi high watermark at Stalingrad. The individualist ideology arrived by sea, storming ashore on the beaches of Normandy and after being staggered once or twice was racing across Western Europe in a gasoline-fueled Red Ball Express. Now, part of this idea was known as capitalism, but that was merely the economic system. Politically, morally, economically, and practically, these were called the forces of freedom for the simple reason that that's what they were. And as the collectivist nightmare known as the German National Socialist State, the Nazi state, wavered and collapsed and then imploded, these two antithetical ideologies met in Berlin. For it was in Berlin, where one world war had just ended, that the next world war was about to begin. Nothing theoretical about the Berlin Wall. It was cold, thick, high, and deadly. It was a daily reminder to those on both sides of the sheer monumental luck. The city block that you lived on determining the fate of you, your children, and their children. No wonder they went at it with hammers and crowbars and even bare and bloody hands. But all of us who watched it happen, felt that giddy, euphoric, mind-boggling sensation that had nothing to do with living in Berlin or even in Germany. We all cried when the wall came down because with it collapsed from our shoulders the death sentence that we'd all been living under because you cannot possibly understand how the world could have been locked in a life and death struggle for half a century unless you can put yourself in the position of those of us who lived through it or through any part of it. You see, when the Berlin Wall fell, it began to dawn on me, like it began to dawn on all of us, that there was going to be an actual future. And despite all the odds, we were going to live to see it. And this is what we saw. An iron curtain. The Cold War effectively ended when the Berlin Wall came down. But when did it begin? Well, the collectivist Soviet superstate from the east with its masses of infantry and tanks never actually fired or received a single shot directly at or from the newest player on the world stage, a young American superpower whose navy ruled the oceans and whose air force owned the skies of the entire world. This bizarre, once in all of history conflict, this life and death battle waged for half a century without a shot being fired between the two adversaries. This cold war, well, it had to begin sometime. But when? If the two opponents in this nuclear standoff had never really been friends at the start of the cold war, they'd not only never faced each other as enemies, but they were in fact allies. 
The big three, Stalin's Soviet Union, Churchill's Great Britain, and Franklin Roosevelt's United States of America had together formed the alliance that had taken down both Germany and Japan. They had fought side by side for three terrible years. Now, Britain and Russia had been at war with each other only in the Crimea 90 years earlier, but all three countries had slogged through the mud together in World War I, so how could this happen? How could three countries, allies, through the two most horrific wars in human history, find themselves facing each other for a third war with incalculably greater stakes? What had changed? Well, Russia had changed. So, did the Cold War actually start on March 15, 1917, when Tsar Nicholas II abdicated the Romanov throne that had ruled Russia for 300 years, launching the Russian Revolution? Did it begin eight months later, when the first revolution, a sloppy, badly run, but liberal series of humane government reforms under Alexander Kerensky, was replaced when Vladimir Lenin and his ruthless Bolsheviks tore power away from the Kerensky government in the 10 days that shook the world and launched the second revolution, the October Revolution, that brought communism to Russia's brutalized people? Or did the Cold War begin even earlier, in the heart of the First War, when Imperial Germany's Kaiser Wilhelm II risked a throw of the dice and delivered the virus of Lenin and his Bolsheviks on a sealed train through Germany and into Russia in order to bring down the Tsar and remove Russia from World War I? Now, and that, by the way, was a decision that the Germans would sorely regret when Lenin's communist descendants threw Germany back into Berlin two decades later during World War II. And if World War III, the Cold War, had been born in the ashes of World War II, but World War II had been the inevitable result of the Treaty of Versailles that had ended World War I, is it possible that distant history will view all of these nuances as nonsense? concluding that wars one, two, and three were really just one catastrophic conflict with timeouts for rearmament and recruitment. In other words, did the war that ended with the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989 actually begin on June 28, 1914, with the bullets fired from the pistol of Serbian anarchist Gavrilo Princip into Crown Prince Franz Ferdinand heir to the Austrian Empire, lighting the spark that exploded the powder keg of Europe and launched World War I. I suppose you could make a case for these or even other dates. It's not easy to find the beginning of a war that never fired a single shot. But if I had to pick a date, I think the best candidate would be June 19, 1948, when the Soviet military blocked Western access to Berlin, which lay within the Soviet zone of occupation. I think. The Cold War began where it ended 41 years later. The Cold War began and ended in Berlin. Bill Whittle did a great job of whittling the big picture down to the essentials and the fundamentals of the human political condition. There are two camps, he says. Exactly. The collectivists and the individualists. Or in other words, the left and the right. The left and left-wing, is always and without exception based on collectivism and always and without exception leads to tyranny. The right, not to be confused with the right-wing, is always based on individualism, a philosophy that always results in the condition of freedom. Moreover, 
He correctly states that collectivism has been the default condition of humanity since humanity began, and that too is correct. Individualism is a concept that rose from being in contrast to the collective, to the tribalism of eons of human existence. Thousands of years of tribalism, and mankind was kept utterly stagnant, compared to the last barely three centuries of some measure of individualism, which allowed for an explosion of knowledge and technology and a lifestyle higher than anything else anyone had experienced ever in the known history of the world. Now, this is perfectly consistent with my own metaphor, that we're all born with an infantile and juvenile mindset of the left, and the development of the political right mindset requires a maturation process that, unfortunately, too many do not experience. So just as collectivism has been the default condition of humanity since humanity began, also by default we are all born with the immaturity of the left. In both cases, this means that the right is always in a disadvantaged position in terms of numbers and in terms of the effort of creating something on the right. And bear in mind that most conservatives and so-called right-wingers, quote-unquote, are not on the right. Most accept and operate on the belief that they can achieve leftist goals in more efficient ways. For example, American rhinos and Canadian progressive conservatives, as we have here in Ontario. Collectivist individualists, I suppose you could call them. And in any compromise between good and evil, between collectivism and individualism, the evil side always wins. Left wing, right wing, two wings on the same bird. The ideologies of wingnut. <laughs> the very concept of a wing in this context assumes some kind of spectrum or degree of leftness or rightness. But in the wingnut version of the political spectrum, each wing represents an ideology of the left, communism and socialism on the left, and fascism on the right, which of course is what I've been calling the broken political compass created by the left. But the greater reality that we must all contend with was summarized when Bill Whittle suggested that distant history will view all of these wars as nuances, concluding that wars 1, 2, and 3 were really one catastrophic conflict with time out for rearmament and recruitment. Well, that certainly explains a lot, including why today in 2023 we're finding bona fide Nazis in the Canadian Parliament. And Nazis, fascists, socialists, and communists alike are all advocates of tyranny, each vying for control to rule, not to govern the populace. Tyranny is the cause of war, and wars are mere flashpoints of tyranny running into resistance. But the real danger is the tyranny itself, and once trapped in a tyranny, it is often a psychological defense mechanism to deny that it is so and to choose to see nothing, hear nothing, and say nothing, which explains much of the political zeitgeist, not only of our day, but of times past. I shall conclude. And wearing an officer's uniform? Achtung! Please don't do that. How did you get out of the camp? That's a long, dull story. I want the truth. 
Well, I could tell you we went out over the wire. Over the wire? But that wouldn't be telling you the truth. Yeah. I hate to tell you anything that wasn't true. So? So forget it. Okay. Good that you did not lie to me. Or I have to report this to Clink at once. Now everybody back to camp. All right, Schultz, have it your way. The only thing is you're going to have to explain to Clink how we escaped while you were on duty. But I'll get the rest of the fellas. No, wait, 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 wait. Have the B&Gs sent outside. Outside? That way it's easier to see nothing. <laughs> As an American, I assumed that I would tell the story more or less from the American point of view. But what I found as I wrote it was that I was spending more and more time with the Russians. Spending time with the Russians because no one had heard that side of the story and also what was going on in Russia is almost beyond imagination. Lenin, Trotsky, Molotov, Stalin, all of them pseudonyms, names invented by the men who bestowed them upon themselves. These were the founding fathers of the Russian Revolution. It bears mentioning that while the American Revolution began with a collection of prominent citizens boldly, and in the case of John Hancock, even brazenly, signing their real names to a declaration of independence, the Russian Revolution was born of men constantly on the run from police, wearing disguises as they were smuggled in and out of secret safe houses, men whose real names were known to the Tsar's secret police. Unlike the proud, prominent, and successful Americans of 1776, the Russians of 1917 were unknown students, radicals, outlaws, men robbing banks and naming themselves after romantic figures in revolutionary literature, or more likely, intellectuals sitting in cafes in France and Switzerland, endlessly dicing and parsing and debating political theory. Theory, theory, always theory. Marxists, Leninists, Trotskyites, Bolsheviks, Mensheviks, Zinovites, debating Bukharanism, sharing safe houses, sharing wives, engaged in passionate screaming matches that sometimes ended with fistfights in basements, cellars, all of it a very, very long way from the reasoned and disciplined appeal to logic and practicality among the most famous men in the country, openly finding entirely different answers in a public hall in Philadelphia. So, who were these men of the Russian Revolution on the eastern side of the wall? Well, one of them, Vladimir Ilyevich Ulanov, a man who called himself Lenin, a failed lawyer who watched an idealized older brother hang by the Tsar's secret police after refusing to ask for clemency, or Lev Davidovich Bronstein, a brilliant, arrogant student who against all odds would become a kind of military genius who virtually corralled the revolution with Lenin under the alias Leon Trotsky. Another one was Vashislav Mikhailovich Skorabin, a dour, humorless apparatchik capable of prodigious amounts of work and who named himself Molotov, the hammer. And of course, Joseph Vasaryanovich Jugasvili, 
a former choir boy from the Caucasus with a badly crushed arm and the ravages of smallpox written forever across his face, an utterly ruthless, utterly paranoid, low-level strongman calling himself Koba, constantly pursued by the Okrana, the Tsar's secret police, who arrested him seven times, exiled him six times, and who had escaped, essentially just walking out of Siberia, five times before meeting his idol Lenin, his nemesis Trotsky, and his lieutenant Molotov, and finally changing his name yet again to Stalin, which means the Man of Steel. Now, these are the names that most people know, but to really understand the Soviet Union, to really get it into your bones what it was like in Soviet Russia, you have to go to other names. Dzerzhinsky, Yagoda, Yezhov, Beria, the Cheka, the GPU, the NKVD, the MGB, the KGB, endless rebranding of the same dreaded Soviet secret police through which the Russian people would be ruled, intimidated, and pacified through the years using the only real weapon that these revolutionary intellectuals really knew how to wield, and that weapon was terror. In the heart of modern Moscow stands Lubyanka Square, one of the highlights of which is the Lubyanka. No one knows exactly how many people were shot in the back of the head from the basement, but it certainly was not less than 10,000 human beings and likely very many more. This building was the Lubyanka proper, the building the square had been named for. This neo-baroque structure looks like a czarist office building. That's exactly what it was. Now, today, out in front of the Lubyanka, there's a low mound covered with flowers on the Google Maps view, but for the duration of the Cold War, that mound of flowers was the base of a large statue of Iron Felix. That'd be Felix Dzerzhinsky, founder of the Cheka, which is an acronym for the All-Russian Extraordinary Commission. That office building, to this day, is the home of the FSB, the Federal Security Service of the Russian Federation. Dzerzhinsky was Lenin's right arm. The Cheka was Lenin's lever, his bludgeon, really. And the Lubyanka was a place of abiding terror for the entire duration of the Soviet Union. In that basement, for decades, innocent Russian civilians who'd been arrested over no more than a glance or a whisper were packed shoulder to shoulder in large cells, holding perhaps 50 people each from the looks of it. Every night, the door to those cells were opened and a list of names were called. Every night, the persons named would step out into the hallway and then be led down an unpainted, unplastered corridor where Russian martial arts tunes were being played on a photograph at ear-splitting levels, not so much to cover the gunshots as to suppress the sound of the screaming. Stripped naked groups of six people at a time were walked through pools of freezing water and stood on wooden duckboards facing wooden doors covered with bullet holes. Some would be arguing, some would be cursing the Czechists in their leather trench coats, some would be trying to bargain with them, very few of them struggled or even tried to run away, none of it mattered, and they all knew it. They stood up in front of six men with revolvers facing away from them towards the door directly in front of each one of them. Families or couples that were brought in together would often hold hands, sometimes complete strangers would as well. Then off to the side, a seventh Czechist would raise a stick, and as he brought it down, six revolvers would fire, aiming for the back of the neck. 
The six pale white bodies would then collapse into the freezing water, a cart on rails would be brought forward, and the six bodies heaped on top of it. The cart would then trundle back to a different part of the basement, where hemp ropes would be tied around the feet of the corpses, and they would be hoisted up one at a time by two sweating men heaving on the pulley up to a truck parked in the closed-off square behind the front of the building. The bodies would then be stacked like cordwood, and when the truck was full, a tarp would be thrown over the pile. Now, hands and legs sometimes poked out from underneath these truckload tarps, which were headed off to open pits on the outskirt of Moscow. But this wasn't a bug, it was a feature. The Czechists wanted people to whisper about what they'd seen. Meanwhile, of course, back in the basement, a man quickly hosed the blood from the wooden doors and rinsed most of the red from the water on the floor, and six more naked, weeping people stepped dutifully forward and took their places facing the doors. Perhaps many of them wondered if these were the doors to their future. It'd be appropriate if they'd done so. You see, there's nothing behind these doors except for the stone-cold walls of the Lubyanka. The doors were there, to prevent ricochets from clipping the executioners. And so it went, night after night, year after year, as the enemies of the people met their revolutionary justice. Now, apologists for this system blame it on Stalin, but this was all Lenin's work. His state could not function without the Lubyanka and Iron Felix. After Lenin died in 1924, Stalin led the Soviet Union through a massive modernization program taking everything from the peasant farmers, including their seed corn. When the peasants resisted Lenin, then Stalin sent the Czechists out to the countryside where they immediately shot anyone found hoarding so much as a handful of grain. Stripped of absolutely everything in order to feed the workers of the new Soviet factories, millions, millions of peasants slowly starved to death. You're listening to Just Right, Broadcasting around the world and online. And there was nothing just right about what we just heard, despite the fact that it was all true. And of course, one of those millions who slowly starved to death was my grandfather, Maximilian Hillinger. And if you stop to think about it, the way those tens of thousands of people in Canada's seniors' retirement homes and hospitals passed away in 2020 was no different. They were all starved to death while authorities got to blame it all on COVID. The only weapon the left knows how to use is terrorism, notes Bill Whittle. And that's to create victim porn, I heard Robert Barnes comment elsewhere a day or so ago. But of course, that is the point of terrorism, to emotionally manipulate the masses. Atrocities are necessary in an undertaking that is primarily as we've heard before, show business and propaganda. They want those images to be seared into the minds and imaginations of the viewer. Already reports are surfacing that many of the videos shown regarding the terrorist attack on Israel are fake, or actually have offered no real evidence about the mass rapes, etc. Either way, don't believe most of what you see in the barrage of reports you'll be hearing out of Israel. Wait till the dust settles, or at least till it gets turned into radioactive particles. And of course, that's the big fear. And of course, when it comes to terrorism and the left, it should come as no surprise that those on the left would object to the label of terrorism being attached to them, since in their narratives, 
all terrorism is to be associated with their imaginary extreme right. This from the Epoch Times on October 7th. Headline reads, CBC leaked email tells reporters not to use the term terrorists in connection with Israel attacks. And it was written by Marnie Cathcart on the 8th of October. Quote, a leaked email purportedly written by CBC's Director of Journalistic Standards instructs reporters not to call those involved in the current attacks on Israel quote-unquote terrorists. The email, dated October 7th, written by CBC's Director of Journalistic Standards, George Achi, says, Do not refer to militants, soldiers, or anyone else as terrorists. The notion of terrorism remains heavily politicized and is part of the story. Even when quoting or clipping a government or a source referring to fighters as terrorists, we should add context to ensure the audience understands this is opinion, not fact. That includes statements from the Canadian government and Canadian politicians, Mr. Achi wrote. He also warned reporters not to use loaded language. This is not a story that comes out of the blue, but is deeply rooted in the political and military landscape of the past few years, he stated. CBC did not return requests for comment by the Epoch Times by press time, end quote. Well, no wonder. This is no isolated incident, though, regarding the CBC. They issued the very same pronouncement a few years ago when France was in the middle of a terrorist attack and the CBC once again denied it was terrorism, even as it was happening and as French President Macron was using that very word to describe it. And we covered that whole incident in its entirety on this show. So why would the CBC continually do such outrageous things? Because terrorism is their bread and butter as well. Again, that's the point of terrorism, to emotionally manipulate the masses. And who's better at that than the fake news media? Consider the nature of the morons whose propaganda it is the CBC's paid obligation to propagate. You know, when Bill Whittle pointed out that the Russian Revolution was born of criminals and bank robbers, unknown students, outlaws, intellectuals, in French Swiss cafes with theory, 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 this all sounded awfully familiar. In fact, in a part of his interview with Robert Vaughn that we did not feature in our audio version last week, Salim Mansour, in addressing the unforgivable honoring of Nazis in Canada's parliament, had this to say. At the end of the day, Robert, my argument is this man, Justin Trudeau, who basically is a cipher, I don't expect anything from this man. Why should you expect anything from this man, Robert, or anybody else? He's a cipher. He's a placeholder. He's given a script. Didn't he say he's a drama teacher? We didn't ask what sort of a drama teacher. We just say he's a drama teacher. You know, he's not a historian. He's not a lawyer. He's not an accountant. He's not a neurosurgeon. He's not, he's none of that. He's a black face drama teacher. Well, what is Zelensky? Isn't he an actor? Doesn't he play piano with a body part? The question is an open sore. Just what kind of qualifications to govern do any of these actors, bank robbers, outlaws, criminals, unknown students, and fake intellectuals have? Well, the ability to destroy civilizations and to start wars and conflicts perpetually. 
Terrorism is a tool of war. It is not necessarily an either-or proposition. Usually it's both. But most people can't see the war for the terrorism. I mentioned earlier that my grandfather was born in Alec, Hungary. And here's a brief point form history of that area as World War II broke out. And see if any of this sounds vaguely familiar. 1939, World War II began when Germany invaded Poland. 1941, Alec received the order that children had to have eight years of schooling, and in that year the census read 9,327. 1942, the Minister of Agriculture passed a law that farmers had to farm a certain amount of produce for the war effort. 1944, the Germans came and occupied Hungary in March. The SS had all available men and women in certain age groups drafted. On the 21st of July, American bombers bombed the areas surrounding Alec. 1944, on Sunday afternoon, on September 24th, Romanian soldiers and their Russian officers marched into Alec. And at this point, my mother had just turned 16. 1945, on the 2nd of January, women between the ages of 17 to 35 and men between the ages of 16 to 48 had to report to various stations set up in the town. They had to bring warm clothing and enough food to last for three weeks. They were told they had to work in sugar factories and clear corn off the fields. On January 11, 1945, 1,000 civilian Nalikers were taken as prisoners aboard 40 remodeled freight cars to Krivoy Rogue, Russia, for forced labor. They arrived there on February 2nd in temperatures of 40 degrees below zero. 1945, March, the holdings of the rich people were confiscated and divided. In October, the first group of civilians who had been taken to Russia returned being very ill. Because of the war, Czechoslovakia, Hungary, Poland, Romania, and Yugoslavia came under communist rule. These five countries expelled more than 12 million Germans and sent them back to Germany. 1946. During the period between April 18 and May 6, 6,000 people of German ancestry in Alec were expelled back to Germany. There were six transports that took them there. My parents were sent on the 5th that went to Würzburg. 1947, the last group of civilians that had been taken to Russia returned in July being very ill. But Max Hillinger died in Krivoy Rog, Russia on July 22nd, 47. And that is why I, whose parents were both born in Hungary, ended up being born in Würzburg, Germany in May 1952 and 15 months later ended up arriving in London, Ontario, Canada where I've pretty much been a full-time Canadian citizen ever since. And with that brief background in mind, here again is Bill Whittle demonstrating how no matter how bad things get, they can always get worse. And there were worse places than the Lubyanka. Just a few miles to the northwest, hidden among an imposing wall was what looks to the modern eye like a slum complex. But this was La Fortovo prison. This is where the more important political prisoners were sent for extended torture sessions. He simply did not say the word Le Fortovo out loud. In fact, you didn't say anything out loud that would only guarantee your passage from outside to inside. 
Le Fortobo prison or the Lupianca long before Lenin and Iron Felix were born during the reign of Catherine the Great, there lived an aging czarist aristocrat named Darya Salkova. Widowed at age 25, an inheritor of a vast estate just 10 miles to the south of Lubyanka Square. After many lonely years, she found herself a young lover, but when he ran off with a younger woman, Saltikova didn't take it at all well. Certain of her immunity, since she was nobility, she found she could freely indulge in some of her hobbies, which consisted of beating her serfs to death. Young women mostly, some as young as 10 years old, for minor offenses like insufficiently polished floors, or she might be temporarily sated by merely setting their hair on fire or dousing them with boiling water. Over the years, at least 138 of her servants were killed this way. All but three of them were women. Her plan for torturing her male servants consisted of simply killing the women in their lives. One of her serfs had three successive wives killed by the blood countess. But she was untouchable, everybody knew that. The Cheka was untouchable too. And so were the GPU and the NKVD and the KGB. For 20 years prior to World War II, the residents of Moscow would stay awake at night staring at the ceiling. The organs of the government, the secret police, would generally raid a building in the dark of night, somewhere around two or three in the morning. These arrests became so commonplace that every single evening, people would stare at the ceiling and wait for the sound of those squat black police trucks, the Black Marias, to pull up outside and turn off their engines. Then more torture, as the creaky elevator slowly rose higher and higher. If it passed your floor, you could exhale at last and maybe grab a few hours of sleep. But in the morning, one of the apartments in that building would be crudely boarded up. Now, if you lived on that floor, you could tell who'd been taken to the Lubyanka or to Le Fortobo by quickly discovering who was missing in the line outside of the floor's single toilet. There were even worse places, places out beyond even Siberia, visible from the basement of the world's tallest building. Russia was cluttered with dots marking each of these places, which looked like ants scurrying across the map of the world's largest country. 423 of these dots would eventually be built, and here's what they would be called. In Wikipedia, the Russian is Gulag. It means Main Administration Camps. It's an acronym. That acronym for the series of what were called Main Administration Camps, the Gulag, was strung out like an island chain in what one of their residents, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, would refer to as the Gulag Archipelago. One of these dots, just one, was located in Kolyma. Nobody knows how many people actually died in the gold mines of Kolyma. All agree that in wintertime, the temperature in and around the camp was the only place where, by coincidence, both Fahrenheit and Celsius scales happened to converge, and that is at 40 degrees below zero for each of them. Initial estimates of three million people killed at Kolyma alone were no doubt too high. The lowest well-researched figure is about 500,000. And the actual total most likely was around 800,000 human souls. Now that means that Kolyma is almost certainly tied for second place with Treblinka at 800,000 dead on the leaderboard from hell. It's unlikely, but it's entirely possible 
that the total death in this worst single island of the 423 islands in the Gulag Archipelago exceeded the 1.1 to 1.6 million people killed at Auschwitz. No one's ever heard of Kolyma, because unlike with Auschwitz and Treblinka and Belzec and Sobibor, there are no pictures that survive from these death camps. Now, I'm telling you all of this because you will never understand the east side of the wall unless you understand a people who are more afraid of what's on their side of the wall than they are of what's on the other. Just a few months before the Soviet Union denied access to West Berlin, the Marshall Plan had gone into effect. Now, through the Marshall Plan, the United States spent $12 billion to rebuild the ruined nations of Europe. That's about $100 billion in today's money. Russia, however, declined the offer, although they desperately needed it. Churchill's Iron Curtain had already come down. Britain, which had thrown out Churchill's Conservative Party along with Churchill himself, had put in its place a socialist government. So while post-war Germany used the Marshall Plan money to build new factories, the UK spent most of it on things like heavily subsidized housing and free prescription eyeglasses. And while Stalin's Red Army had thousands and thousands of tanks and artillery pieces and millions of troops lined up on the east side of the Iron Curtain, the United States had essentially just one thing on the western side to stop all of that. The United States had the atomic bomb. And more than that, the United States had shown that it was willing to use it. So, there they stood, facing each other for a full half century. Neither side able to understand the other because of the historical lenses through which they viewed the world were trained in opposite directions. So I'm listening to a Tucker Carlson uh, speech that he made just this last week. And he tells a story that uh, like some 20 years ago or something, he was actually in a plane crash, literally. Something blew up and he, they crashed. I wanna show you his story and then let's talk about the reaction of the people on the plane. And specifically the people who were authorities on the plane. Take a look. Because I am totally convinced at my age that denial is the most powerful of all human instincts. I'm serious. I mean, honestly, I was, was 22 years ago, next month, I was uh, in a plane that crashed, amazingly, in the Middle East, flying from Peshawar, Pakistan, the Khyber Pass was right after 9-11. I was going over to cover the Taliban, and something happened in the cargo hold, and we went down in the sand dune in Dubai. Obviously, I survived, but it was a Pakistan International Airways flight, and the thing that changed my life about that experience was Something happened horrible to the plane. Like there was an explosion in the cargo hold, some debate about what it was, but it happened. And the plane starts dropping and the wing appears to detach, the right wing. And the plane is like struggling for altitude and going up, gunning the engines and sideways. It's like three in the morning over the Arabian Sea. People are freaking out on the plane. Every person on that plane thought we we're gonna die, very much including me. I had three little kids. I was half drunk, which makes it worse. And 
we finally come in kind of sideways into the sand and the plane's on its side. And I'm in the first seat on the plane. It's a big double Airbus. And I just had one thought, which is I'm getting off the plane. And it's, you know, totally dark. And you can see burning from the wing. So it's like, it is time to depart the plane. So I hop up. And this male flight attendant stands right in front of me and goes, sit down, everything is fine. Everything is fine. <laughs> That's a verbatim quote. Everything is fine. It was so demonstrably unfine, I, I can't even begin to describe how unfine it was. <laughs> and I think just out of pure panic, I like ignored the guy and I opened the door and the slide went up and I jumped into darkness with like four other Westerners in the front. Everyone in the back though, they were like, oh, everything's fine. And I thought, I've brooded on that for over 20 years. Like, why did he claim everything was fine? The pilots, by the way, went right out the front windows. Well, they did. Oh, absolutely. Like, whatever. Good luck, guys. Um, and I think he just couldn't metabolize the change. It was so awful. He just could not admit what was happening right there in front of everybody. So do you know any people like that in your life right now? Everything's fine. Um, there's, there's no, nothing to see here. No problems. <laughs> you know, okay. Our dollar is, you know, who knows doing what at any given day could be worth, you know, pennies to the dollar. And we've got things going on in Israel like we have never seen before. I have been so grieved. I have literally had tears in my eyes thinking about those families and what has just happened in Israel on their day of peace. This terrorist organization, a bunch of thugs and sociopaths, have come in and done unthinkable things to Israeli people, to the Jews. And some people I know in our world are saying, well, you know, the Jews are behind a lot of this elitist stuff. And there's, hey, there's bad Jews, there's bad Italians, there's bad Palestinians, there's bad um, Americans, there's bad Canadians. And I know a few of them, and I could name them right now, and you'd agree with me. But they're all in Ottawa. <laughs> I recall when Laura Lynn Tyler Thompson, a couple of years ago, asked the question, why do they not see the Nazis? <laughs> Turned out to be a great play on words and a great way of asking a fundamental question. Why don't more people see what is around them? In a tyranny, everyone is in fear of saying anything quote-unquote out loud, as Bill Whittle put it. So consider the deeper meaning of that. It's not the talking that fascists fear, it's the hearing by others. So it is important to keep in mind that whatever form it takes, censorship is not a means to prevent people from talking, it's the means to prevent other people from hearing, and therefore the means of creating a society that knows nothing, sees nothing, hears nothing, and says nothing, and does nothing, or worse, hastens its own end. Knowledge is power, and when you have knowledge of some truth, denying that knowledge is a way of assuring the tyrant that you're no threat to him. Which explains the attitude of Sergeant Schultz in the Hogan's Heroes TV series. Which is exactly why our own Nazi parliament under Justin Trudeau is pursuing the censorship offered behind Canada's Bill C-11 being sold as a means to protect Canadian podcast listeners by regulating podcasts in Canada the same way they've regulated the AM and FM markets out of existence. Don't quite know how that might affect this show, especially since each of our shortwave broadcasts originate outside Canada. 
presently in the United States and in Germany, and our website is also situated outside Canada. So, I hope that this week's journey has sparked the kind of discomfort I spoke about at the opening of the show. A level of discomfort necessary to get more people to hear something, see something, know something, and then maybe say and do something, like joining us again next week, when we will continue our journey in the right direction. And until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see you then. To black and white Under the bedclothes Everything will be alright Where, sir? I haven't done anything I always do nothing I see nothing, I hear nothing And above all, I know nothing <laughs>